most bands have a pretty similar origin story, you know? They start out, they have all this ambition, they're really dedicated, they practice all the time, they scrap and save to get their own money to press their own single. They go into some local record store and they they hound the guy in the record store to sell their EP. They they chase down DJs and clubs and ask them to play it. And some local guy decides, you know, hey, uh, this band, something's really happening. And they decide, I'm going to become a manager. I'm going to manage this band. They've never managed a band in their life. It's all blag. It's all bullshit. They're just talking their way into rooms and trying to figure out how to get away with it. Everyone is. The band is. their first managers. It happens every time. The story of Def Leppard is almost identical. These guys were teenagers. Rick Allen was 15 when he played drums for Def Leppard after their first EP was cut. Joe Elliott, the rest of the guys, they're like 17, 18 years old. They, they go to Hull, they record a 7-inch EP. They go to their local record store. The guy who's running the record store plays it for his friend. His friend's like, I can't believe how good this is. I want to manage him. The guy at the record store says, hey, you can't take these guys away from me. Okay, well, let's work together. And one of these guys, the guy Frank, who owns the record store, knows somebody at Radio 1 kind of tangentially. He you know, sacrifices potentially that friendship by crossing the line and saying, you got to hear this band. He takes them out in a car and basically imprisons these two Radio 1 DJs and forces them to listen to Def Leppard. But they're blown away. One of the guys is like, I want them to record for us a session. One of the big things BBC Radio 1 would always do is record sessions of these bands because then they would own them, right? They'd have a piece of them. So if Def Leppard blows up, I've got a John Peel session. I've got a BBC Radio 1, you know, Made of Veil session. So the guy, the record store owner, played the tape for who wants to manage him. He has connections in the press. So he calls up Sounds Magazine, and Sounds is the only magazine that would, at this point, touch something like what becomes known as the new wave of British heavy metal. All the glossies are punk and then what's going to become new wave, new romantics uh, and the Blitz kids. That's all a lineage that goes back to, you know, 1976 Kings Road, Malcolm McLaren, punk. That's a complete genealogy. And that genealogy continued to really rule the major press magazines in England right up to about 1980. That's what the press latches onto. Well, Sounds hadn't made that leap. And their editor came up to Sheffield and saw Def Leppard live. And he was convinced that they were legitimately something special. That, that this band that was so clearly inspired by, you know, Thin Lizzy. And people forget how important Thin Lizzy was to these kids. That twin guitar attack, they were so tight. Nobody had ever heard music produced, rock music produced that clearly, that brilliantly and brightly. The 
punks didn't repudiate Thin Lizzy at all, but there really wasn't any room for Thin Lizzy to be kind of a present tense cool band because they were just that early and just that kind of boogie, let's say, in their rock that they didn't fit with punk. And to their credit, they didn't pivot and try and court that. They stayed true to themselves, which is its own sort of kiss of death, you know, versus, let's say, you know, T-Rex and Mark Bolin trying to do all the silly stuff he did toward the end. It's probably better to have stayed your own course and let history kind of write the referendum on you. But these kids in Def Leppard, they came up and blew up in a way that uh, was really fortuitous. They get a center spread in sounds the same week the BBC starts airing one track a night from their session. And this is a brilliant synchronicity that's engineered by these two sort of, you know, older guys who heard them first. The ball just got rolling too fast and they weren't able to hold on to Def Leppard. That happens to those first time managers in most cases. And they got a huge opportunity to open for ACDC and they succeeded. They did not shrink from that stage. They carried themselves as an opening act with, you know, headliner poise. And they were immediately noticed by ACDC's manager. And in short order, Peter Mensch ended up managing Def Leppard. And they got signed to Mercury and hooked up with Mutt Lang, who was coming off his work on Back in Black. And so for all these people in the industry, Def Leppard is playing music that's already doing well. ACDC's catalog was selling phenomenally. The Bon Scott records were getting a huge bump, you know, sadly out of his passing, but also out of the strength and quality and success of Back in Black. <laughs> Def Leppard were seen as, you know, a younger pinup kind of band of, of attractive young kids playing the same kind of music with outside sophistication and knowledge of the genre. There's only five bands in the history of rock that have sold 10 million copies of more than one album. It's a very weird statistic. And it's a silly thing to try and take numbers and make this you know, sweeping statement about the importance of a band. You think about changes in, in physical media, you know, going from vinyl to cassette to compact disc. You think about you know, the onset of file sharing in the early and mid-2000s, and then finally us arriving at streaming. Arguments in favor of a band's importance that are based on sales figures are increasingly irrelevant. But in this case, it's pretty fucking crazy. Prince has never sold 10 million copies of more than one album. He sold like 25 million copies of Purple Rain worldwide and, and of like 13 million in America. But he did not sell 10 million copies of two albums. NSYNC, right? This is the peak of physical media sales. Late 90s, early, early 2000s is the absolute peak of the sale of music as a physical object. NSYNC does not have two albums that sold 10 million copies. Def Leppard sold 11 million copies of Pyromania in 1983 and 1984 and estimated 17 million copies of Hysteria between 1987 and 1990. 
The only other bands who've done that, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and Van Halen, oddly, because their debut in 1984 were both so massive at different times. You know, does that mean anything? I wrote a long article and used Hysteria essentially as the basis of it, where I talked about how record labels used to fake out the charts by shipping huge numbers of records and then putting pressure on the various channels in, of distribution for physical media, meaning record stores, you know, whatever, to not have them end up returned. It was cost effective for record labels at certain points to ship records and destroy them because whatever they would have made off selling them, the advertising value of appearing in the top 10 of the Billboard chart, which is reprinted and rebroadcast and is driving FM radio play all over America. If you wanted to make it in America, you needed to break the top 10 because that record of records, that top 10 on Billboard, was used as the linchpin of defining music culture in America. There was a huge change in the 1980s. Any successful genre was turned into pop. You had Culture Club playing pop reggae. You had Def Leppard and a host of other, you know, new wave of British heavy metal bands playing pop metal. Michael Jackson, Thriller, Disco, pop. Everything comes down to a three, three and a half minute song because of MTV and FM radio. It's a pivot from the album rock excess of the 70s of Yes and fucking Uriah Heep and all this shit um, and Queen. All these bands with these, you know, I mean, of course, Queen had Fat Bottom Girls and lots of little singles, but this whole excess of structured, you know, cathedrals of eight minute songs with, you know, Nantucket Sleigh Ride, you fucking name it. And that just becomes a very stale thing, which again is why Thin Lizzy was so important to everybody. And it, it's so unfortunate that, especially in America, there is such a limited understanding of what that felt like, which was sharpen it up. You know, sharpen this shit up, tighten it the fuck up, make it digestible, make it fun, adrenaline rush. It's like a little drug. Each song is like a pocket hit. And Thin Lizzy was the only band that really started doing that in a way that preserved the kind of traditional thrust of guitar rock. In America, you think about kids in the 70s and 80s going out to huge arenas, getting shit-faced in the parking lot and maybe popping some quaaludes or smoking a spliff. There's a different psychology. You don't have these domes like this in England. There's only a couple of big venues in England in the 70s and 80s. The whole psychology of the heavy metal parking lot, it doesn't really exist in England. It's a completely American social and physical environmental construct. People get tired of shit, and album-oriented rock and progressive rock and progressive metal had just spun too far out of control. It was too kind of stoner and stale cigarette butt smelling. And the 1980s is when all of these ideas just got stripped down and turned into bubblegum little chunks of genre.
Def Leppard took off in a way that few bands ever have. There was that much investment and excitement around them. They were just quickly recognized by extremely powerful, influential people in the music industry uh, as an attractive commodity. And they wanted to be attractive because these guys grew up in Sheffield. They're Yorkies. And, you know, Sheffield's not a bomb site, but they've got some pretty bad legendary council estates there like Park Hill. Uh, and these guys were teenagers thinking their lives were over. Joe Elliott, the singer, was working in a steelworks. Sav, the bassist, was training for British Railways. These guys' lives were mapped out. They were going to work nine to five, get married, start having kids, that whole thing, you know, that all the punks had rejected. They didn't want it any more than anyone else. But their attitude wasn't, you owe me that, and fuck you because you're not giving me everything I want. It was, I need to go out and fucking knock people down and win them over. And they took it seriously. They practiced every fucking night. They busted their ass to get good. Now, whether the music they were playing ended up appealing to the right people uh, is another problem. It's a problem that dogged them their whole career. And they just got no respect for it because they found success so quickly. They were dogged by their ambition and their unwillingness to apologize for whether or not someone considered them out of fashion. You know, if I'm out playing to 40,000 people a night in America, in every city in America, and you're back in some shithole flat writing for IPC about how great Morrissey is, do I give a shit? Nope. So Mutt Lang has uh, established himself essentially with the work on Back in Black, and Def Leppard was his first pet project. This is the first band that was younger than him that he could kind of boss around. Uh, and the band, you know, has said repeatedly that it was very difficult doing high and dry with him because he was relentless and a perfectionist. And I mean, to, if you want to understand what this guy's recording techniques are like, it's not just that he showed Def Leppard the value of multi-tracking harmonies and that, you know, this became the signature overproduced aspect of their sound. As an example, in the nineties, he engineered a comeback for Brian Adams with an album called Waking Up the Neighbors. Brian Adams is on record as saying there were over 100 tracks of vocals recorded for each song on that album. If you're trying to establish continuity of the strength of the voice before it starts to wear and get you know raspy maybe you use the raspy take in under the first take and you can mix and match the whisper tracks all these different things you can do sweet and vocal a hundred fucking tracks how do you i mean what the fuck how is he labeling this stuff is one of these like is it per word is he looking for like a perfect recitation of each word i mean he can't go that crazy back in 82 83 when they're working on pyromania but he took it pretty far he had half the board dedicated to vocal wash, you know, for some of these songs. And he was right, because Pyromania sold over 10 million copies and generated uh, four pretty substantial singles, including the sort of career-defining photograph, which is, uh, you talk about saturation. I mean, this is also something that's not really remembered because the press were so allergic to Def Leppard, because they were so preeminent and so massive and so obvious you know, what could you say about that? Do you need to sell anybody on Def Leppard? That's what the press does. 
the press either piggybacks on successful acts by creating sort of personal angles, or they try and break new shit so that they have some stake in the kind of historical record of, of how a band made it. And then the band owes them something, and when they blow up, they have to kind of come back and give them, you know, favor interviews. In 1983, Def Leppard were the, the number two act in the world, you know, but behind Michael Jackson. But, you know, the, the absolute saturation of Michael Jackson across all popular culture and even popular consciousness in 1983 and 1984. Um, the, the idea that there could be such a distinction between him and Def Leppard, who are selling 10 million albums, to the point where, you know, Def Leppard is sort of not even memorable in that period. You know, people are more likely to think, oh, yeah, 1983, remember the police? Like, yeah, the police were huge. Synchronicity was a massive album. They didn't sell anywhere near what Def Leppard did. You know, I mean, it, it's a very strange thing how this band is just this blank spot in people's memories of the 1980s. Like every preeminent 80s guitar band, Def Leppard were destroyed by the explosion of grunge, right? And the shift toward, you know, bullshit, plaid, shorts, cargo shorts, etc. You just had a rejection of the old and an embrace of the new in that dramatic way. When the industry is forced to understand that consumer behavior has irretrievably changed and they no longer control it, when they can no longer tell kids what's cool, uh, that's when you have real, real foundational shakeups. And every one of these bands like Bon Jovi uh, and Def Leppard, Poison, you know, all these bands just sold millions of truckloads of albums in the 80s. They were just erased. And it's funny because Def Leppard actually had an album come out right at that moment, Adrenalize. And it did really well. <laughs> and they're probably the luckiest of all the 80s metal bands. Uh, they were canny, sharp guys. They understood everything had changed. And they started paying attention. Joe Elliott noticed when they were in America, the radio was just playing completely different shit. And he started making tapes of all those grunge bands. Um, they were huge into Soundgarden, loved Soundgarden, uh, liked Alice in Chains. And, you know, they weren't going to go into the studio and make a fucking grunge record. Like, they just knew they needed to try something different. This is when they started to hit a lot of personal bottoms. Both Rick Allen and Joe Elliott were accused of spousal battery, going through divorces. Sav lost his father right when they were going to start recording this album. So they've got, you know, essentially all the money in the world at this point coming in. But they know that they have no position in the theater of pop. They know that they've been displaced. Luckily for them, their kind of indulgent personal record, slang, comes way late. So unlike, say, you know, a Poison or a Bon Jovi, the bands that really fell for the image first, music second, a number of them tried too quickly to moves that embraced some sort of authenticity a la, you know, grunge and not giving a shit and being real and down to earth. A bunch of these bands tried to aggressively remarket themselves. And MTV, you know, having made all this money on the back of a poison, let's say, was sort of beholden to give them a platform and did. 
And you'd see, you know, all of a sudden Brett Michaels comes out and he's got, you know, a bandana on and there's no more makeup and he's got stubble. And he's trying to say like, no, no, we totally get this. We, we completely play music like this. We would have done that, you know, anyway, but it just wasn't what people wanted. We were giving people what they wanted and now they want something different, but it, we totally get it. You know, we loved Alice Cooper and David Bowie. They were huge inspirations to us, you know, but the problem was you chase the fat and you get burned when you do that. Def Leppard were too big to get burned, you know, because their behavior, um, the content of their songs, as I said previously, was so neutral and so inoffensive, with the exception of maybe a pour some sugar on me, um, that you had really young, young kids continuing to arrive at Def Leppard as part of their sort of preteen exposure to louder rock music. Um, and that's a huge that's a huge aspect of the endurance of that band and why they uh, didn't get so crucified during grunge. But when they came back together, they sort of did what anybody in their position with half a brain would do, which is look around. They'd seen Susie and the Banshees come through with like a almost baggy, you know, drum loopy psychedelic pop song and kiss them for me. They'd seen Depeche Mode succeed, a band they loved. Def Leppard, most people don't know this, actually covered Personal Jesus. You know, they've got really big years. Most bands have really big years. The question is, what do you do with all those influences? Because Def Leppard are the influence. They're a template. They're the template for rock success in the 80s. And they do this thing, this ultra basic stripped back and then built to the stratosphere in terms of all the kitchen sink shit Mutt Lang throws at it. But the songs themselves could not be more simple. I think there's an intellectually compelling dichotomy there between how basic the song structures and messages are and how incredibly technical the production and presentation is. And so when they came together, they rented a villa. This is funny because they constantly market how uh, we, we lived in this little villa in the south of Spain, you know, overlooking North Africa. And we wanted to take it back to basics and really make this, you know, direct recorded album of our own without, you know, mutts overproduction. The reality is they had a completely state-of-the-art studio down there. It, it didn't seem state-of-the-art to Def Leppard who had like, you know, fucking five 48 track double two by 24 desks, you know, running while they're doing hysteria to them two ADATs and like a trident board seems like slumming it. In reality, they had probably 50 to $75,000 worth of gear, if not more, uh, in this villa and the album sounds fine. <laughs> 
in terms of the bands that inspired them, like Stone Temple Pilots, that had that, still had that panache and that kind of, you know, narcissistic sexuality in Scott Whalen's performances. You know, Stone Temple Pilots, even at the time, I had a guilty pleasure with The Big Empty, which was on the Crow soundtrack. And the Crow soundtrack was one of the chief inspirations for Def Leppard's slang. The first four songs on this are about the strongest. I mean, this is not a sophisticated record in terms of its sequencing. You're not setting out on a journey that's going to surprise you and have these scenic curves and vistas. There's four good kind of shitty mid-90s produced rock songs on this record, and then a bunch of pretty thin ballads that really drag um, toward the end of this record. There's also there's also a song um, that I believe is about ecstasy. There's a song called Pearl of Euphoria. You know, I don't know. It might be about E. Uh, who knows? Those guys went up and down with stuff. I think Phil Collin was totally sober by this point, so probably not. The analog for me when you listen to, you know, Truth and Slang, the title track, you can hear that Def Leppard has, has heard ministry, let's say, has heard, you know, Big Beat. They tried everything here. They they didn't use their logo. This is the only thing they've ever released that doesn't have the iconic Def Leppard logo on it. You know, that that sort of Union Jack inspired heavy metal, you know, draw it on your school notebook logo that's just so iconic and singular. They worked with a fucking skateboard company from Vermont, JDK, and had them, you know, come up with this look that was just completely out of step with anything Def Leppard had done. This whole record, you can see it everywhere. Work it out, truth, you know, turn to dust. They're, they're actually writing about their lives, which is something they've never been allowed to do before. Because Mutt Lang is, the only thing he cares about is making a perfect record in the field of records. Reality, your personal life, I could give a shit. You're a musician. We're here to make music. They were children all through the 80s. By the time Hysteria finishes up, they're not even 30. Rick Allen's not even 30 yet. And so it was sort of a perfect time for them to try and just figure out who the hell they were. You know, Steve Clark had not been able to do that. And, you know, at various points, Rick Allen really got lost and Phil Collin did too. They understood that things come and go. They'd seen Bowie come and go throughout the 80s, you know? I mean, he died completely at the end of the 70s. It was miserable. He couldn't get fucking arrested. And then he goes and poaches, you know, Steve Strange's outfits and does Ashes to Ashes. And then he hooks up with Nile Rodgers and does Let's Dance. I mean, you know, the chameleonic aspect of Bowie, that cliche, is incredibly instructive to other musicians. 
Ups and downs happen even to Bowie. If he can go through it, so can we, right? And Def Leppard were easily as big as he'd ever been. They, they're heroes, you know, who had been fads, in some cases, Mata Hoople and, uh, uh, you know, other 70s glam rock acts that they grew up loving. Thin Lizzy didn't last the 80s. There's a famous anecdote Joe Elliott tells that Phil Lennett came up to him and when they released Pyromania. And, uh, you know, this is just, it's complete bullshit because, you know, his life was a mess at that point. But he came up to Joe Elliott and kind of said, hey, you know, I heard your record. I'm done. I broke up the band. You know, I'll never top that kind of a thing. It was just, just a nice way of saying like, hey, you did a great fucking job on this, man. And, and I like your music. And I think we come from kind of a similar place, which is, I mean, that's that something like that probably carries Joe Elliott to this day. When you get that kind of a compliment from somebody who'd inspired you to do any of this in the first place, that's worth more than the money and, and, you know, the house in L.A. and the studio in Dublin and, you know, being able to do whatever you want at any moment. The older I get, the less interested I am in music that appeals to me. I'm more interested in music that comes out of a period of strife or music that's forgotten uh, or music that still resonates but is never going to, you know, succeed or command the kind of attention that, that let's say, you know, a de facto historic album is going to. And one of the first videos I made, you know, seven years ago, I talk about this. I talk about how it's frustrating to me that there aren't ways to talk about unimportant records because unimportant records are still incredibly meaningful and instructive. They communicate more in their failings than successful records do. But in the case of Def Leppard, the distance they go from the heights of hysteria to the absolute vacuum popularly that confronted them on the release of this record, which was a complete failure. It's intriguing that they bothered to do it. It says a lot about them as people and about their relationship with music that they would have bothered 